are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, our first of the new year, the organization Challenge Aspen makes outdoor experiences like skiing possible for people living with disabilities. Did you see her smile on her eyes? It's just like, I don't know, the joy of being here. It's wonderful, honestly, like it gives me shivers. Plus, a conversation with Jackson music scene staple, Sneaky Pete. Early on, we just knew we wanted to make people dance. But first, as the Biden administration aims to speed up the transition away from fossil fuels and combat climate change, many of the battles between conservationists and business interests are being waged over federal land across the vast Mountain West. KHOL's Will Walkie reports on the millions of acres and thousands of livelihoods at stake in Wyoming. This story is part of a Rocky Mountain Community Radio reporting collaborative on the transition away from fossil fuels. Ann Chambers' nobles roots run deep in Sublet County. She's owned a cattle ranch for years in Cora, population 142. My husband and I have descendants of the longest continuous black Angus herd in the state of Wyoming. It's 101 years old, the herd. One of Noble's many side hustles is being a local writer and historian. And she says it's pretty hard to tell the story of Sublette County without mentioning fossil fuels, and in particular, a natural gas boom that occurred in the late 90s and early 2000s. This was the, the best of times and the worst of times. And it really was that all in the same sentence. Geologic discoveries in the area, plus a new pipeline network built all the way to California, allowed surveyors to extract massive amounts of natural gas and oil. The local well count exploded from just 58 in 1997 to more than 1,300 only four years later. Noble says nearly every aspect of local life was affected by the boom. The revenue that was generated was mind-boggling, and it quickly became very addictive. We went from barely being able to pay salaries for teachers, our classrooms were getting too big, to within a very short amount of time, huge revenues available for our schools. We were one of the first schools in the nation that bought every kid a computer. But there were also downsides. Noble remembers feeling like all of a sudden she should lock her doors because she didn't know all of her neighbors. Impacts on wildlife and drinking water have also been well documented. The pollution was was terrible, and I remember that vividly. I remember I had um, high school daughters that we had to decide as parents whether we were going to have them go to ski practice or not because it wasn't the ozone level was so dangerous, it wasn't safe for them to be exercising outside. Ten miles from Noble's Ranch, there are still natural gas rigs dotting the sagebrush landscape and groaning with the wind over a decade after the boom died down. About 80% of the land leased for drilling in Sublette County is federal, and several fossil fuel companies looking for their next hotspot think there might be more resources available here. Steve Degenfelder is land manager for Kirkwood Oil and Gas, based in Casper. He prospects for new mining and drilling spots across the West. So uh, rest assured that most of the actions that, that we propose involve the federal government. I deal with them on a daily, daily basis, not just hypothetical. But since the Biden administration came to power, he says it's been difficult to do his job. 
In early 2021, the Interior Department suspended new oil and gas leasing on public land, a decision that was reversed later in the year due to various legal challenges. And while a delayed sale is expected in 2022, hundreds of parcels, including many in Sublet County, are no longer on the market because of environmental concerns. Degenfelder disagrees with that choice. You know, we're in between a rock and a hard place. You know, we've exposed a bunch of money, but we can't develop any prospect until we have the lease picture uh, leased up. The Interior Department also recently announced that a complete overhaul of the federal oil and gas leasing system, both on and offshore, is in order. And many conservationists are welcoming of the move, including Jesse Prentice Dunn, policy director for the Center for Western Priorities. The laws are 100 years old, and the industry gets to dictate almost every step from where they want to drill, the low rates they pay to get the leases, the low rates they pay to taxpayers when they drill it, and then uh, the requirements to clean it up. And so that that's really what needs to change now. Prentice Dunn says Wyoming's resources for recreation or renewable energy shouldn't take a back seat to fossil fuels. He also argues that the president's actions haven't been that disruptive. In fact, the number of active oil and gas drilling rigs in Wyoming tripled during the leasing pause. Right now, there are more than 25 million acres of our public lands that are leased for oil and gas, and about half of those are just sitting idle. They got a huge stockpile. They got thousands of drilling permits that have been approved, but they haven't used. For now, the leasing system will continue as it has been, with minimal changes despite all the noise from the federal government. Back at her ranch, Noble says many locals would welcome future leasing for the jobs, but others are against any new development. Her opinion lands somewhere in the middle. I stand to directly benefit from this. So for me to be totally against it would be shooting myself in the foot. <laughs> Come on back, not to the level you did before, and let's, let's, let's all stay calm and be responsible. Noble also points out that squabbles over federal land policy can sometimes miss the bigger picture, which is that it's us humans that need and use this energy. I guess we all have to recognize that we are part of the demand. And if we're part of the demand, we're enabling that drilling. They've got to get it somewhere. It's here. The question is whether Sublet County will see another drilling boom or if the country will decide Wyoming's fossil fuels are better off staying in the ground. For KHOL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Will Walkie in Cora, Wyoming. About six years ago, Asia Janey was diagnosed with ALS, a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. Jamie is now in a wheelchair, but last month she skied down Snowmass Ski Area with Challenge Aspen, an organization that provides outdoor experiences for people living with disabilities. Hallie Zander of Aspen Public Radio has the story. Cammie Crady has been a Challenge Aspen instructor for five years. Okay, so we'll put you back in the chair from here to the end of like the walkway over there. And then we'll transfer you back in the sit-ski. This morning, she's been adjusting a sit-ski for Asia, who was diagnosed with ALS about six years ago. 
Does that seem good to you? Mm-hmm. More tighter? Mm-hmm. You happy with that? Mm-hmm. I am too. <laughs> ALS is degenerative and terminal. The ALS Foundation says that a typical life expectancy after diagnosis is approximately two to five years. I asked Challenge Aspen's Rec Program Director Deb Sullivan about this statistic and why some people like Asia seem to live beyond that range. Well, I think a positive attitude, a go-get-em attitude um, is part of it and having the support that they have. And it takes a lot in a person to search out support. And if that person has that, I think there's that will to experience and to live. And Asia has that attitude. This is her first time skiing, but Sullivan says there's more on her to-do list. Um, She had a bucket list of things to do. And if things open up, they might get to dog sled or maybe go to Pine Creek Cookhouse or they're definitely going to the hot springs. Uh, they want to go to the adventure park, and the, you know they want to do the alpine coaster. And she wants to snowmobile. I mean, she just wants to do things that she's seen pictures of in the snow. Asia is donning a big smile while she gets fitted for her sit ski. It's a chair with fitted foam padding connected to two skis underneath. Sullivan explains. So that is basically a chair that sits on top of two skis, and we put some fixed outriggers that kind of keep her from tipping. And, um, and then they have a tether, and um, she gets to, you know, she can shift her body weight and help it turn. So there are things that she can do in that position, but she's tethered to an instructor for safety. Right. So it's not like they're just taking her down the mountain. She gets to be a part of it. Definitely. Asia's friends, Camila Pleasance and Valerie Wardwick, are watching closely. They traveled from North Carolina to support Asia. Wardwick seems protective over Asia, asking lots of questions about the process. How is this working? Like, who's leading her? On what device? Like, on your skis? So I'm going to be on my skis. And when I pulled them aside, Pleasance and Wardwick both described Asia with a lot of strong language. Very outgoing, loving, very giving. Demanding, (laughs) Um, inspirational, great friend, and determined. (laughs) She is a go-getter. She's very ambitious, strong-willed, you know, just very determined. She's very determined, doesn't take no for an answer, and she always finds an answer to a problem. Crady, Asia's instructor for the day, concurs. Did you see her smile on (laughs) her eyes? It's just like... I don't know, the joy of being here, um, it's wonderful. Honestly, like, it gives me shivers uh, when I see her. She seems like a really happy person. Asia is mostly nonverbal. Her friends and caretaker are there to help interpret, but most of the time, Asia can respond to questions herself. Asia, how are you feeling right now? Nervous. Nervous? <laughs> yeah. Nervous and excited or just nervous? Asia has some reasons to be nervous. Challenge Aspen has a lot of equipment and precautions to keep participants like Asia safe. 
but skiing always has risks. The one thing is we are heavy. There's a heavy equipment, there's me, there's the person, there's Asia in the sit ski. So if anything goes wrong, it goes wrong pretty fast, pretty drastically. Despite her nerves, Asia is no stranger to adventure. Before coming to Snowmass, she had already been skydiving. Asia, is this more or less exciting than skydiving? Yeah, yes. Less? Less? Less exciting? <laughs> but hopefully you like it more. That's what I was going to say. So Asia gets situated in her sit ski and heads out on the slopes. Let's do it. Crady and Asia move pretty quickly down the hill, faster than all the other beginners on the Meadows ski run. Asia's nerves disappear. How do you feel about skiing so far? Wardwick, one of Asia's friends, says that Asia's personal mission on this trip is to disprove stereotypes about people with ALS. One of the things she also told me was she wanted to, you know, do something different and show people that people with ALS want to still do stuff and it's not, you know, over just because you have ALS. If you tell her no, <laughs> she's going to come back and, and have a valid reason of why it should be yes and get you to doubt what you said. Like, huh, maybe she's right. <laughs> um, so she always finds a way to get what she wants. So that's Asia. Asia's mission resonates strongly with her instructor, Crady, who has her own personal reasons for working with Challenge Aspen. I grew up with a brother who has visual impairments and when he was diagnosed, it was challenging for him to keep on skiing because... I'm, I'm from France, and we don't have the same programs. It, it's not as accessible. I think it's wonderful to be able to give the opportunity to anybody with any type of ability to enjoy the outdoors. I think it has like a healing power to just be outside. After a few runs, Asia has a message she wants to share with the Aspen community. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, love that's that. good. <laughs> Hallie Zander, Aspen Public Radio News. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, K-12 Music Director Jack Catlin interviews Jack Tolan and Andrew Keene of the local band Sneaky Pete, a favorite of Jackson Hole dance floors. This conversation was recorded live last month in the KHOL studios. Sneaky Pete and the Secret Weapons formed in Jackson Hole in 2011 and have since become one of Jackson's most beloved bands, winning fans over with their energetic, dance-inducing live shows. The band has toured all over the Western U.S., blending funk, rock, and reggae to produce their own brand of, in their own words, high-altitude stink funk. In advance of their back-to-back winter kickoff shows at the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar, singer-guitarist Jack Tolan and drummer Andrew Keene join us now in the K-12 studios. Welcome in, guys. Thanks Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. 
So how did your relationship with funk grow to the point you wanted to create your own version of it? Early on, we just knew we wanted to make people dance and it wasn't, we didn't like decide that it was like going to be funk really. It just kind of like happened. That was just like where people's influences and I guess where the music was coming from was mm-hmm. on the funky side. Our sound has changed a bunch a since lot. we've added Andrew. Like Andrew's reggae yeah. and punk influences have uh, have changed the changed the sound quite a bit. Especially right. if we've like gone th- back through and reworked songs with Andrew's flair in there. Your sound is not only funk, but kind of a melting pot: reggae, punk, rock, jazz, and jam music. I love that you refer to yourselves as we talked about. In the intro, high altitude stink funk. Can you elaborate on that for us? Just the stink funk itself, and then the the combination of all the genres you guys like to include in the in the uh, melting pot, quote unquote. We came up with that I think I years ago as we were starting to tour, and we were like, okay, how do we? Okay, we need to let people know we're from this mountain town, but also that we're like funky, and that I guess we just yeah just smell bad. That has to be where it came no, from. No, it's definitely there's photos of like Sam playing the bass. And when he's really into it, he makes a face like he's smelling something hard. <laughs> that is where it came from is the stink face, which is like is in the which musical is world is like face. high praise. That's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the That's highest like, praise you can receive from another really musician. It's just Ray like Vaughan. the yucky face. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know what that is. <laughs> you're so into it that you're appalled of how good it's going. So if that face does come, yeah, it's usually going well. And is the combination of all the genres just a natural inclusion of all your influences and inspiration it is and that really from the get-go we've all been writing songs and contributing them to the band whether we're showing up with 90 percent of a song that just needs to be sculpted or we just have like a riff idea and we write it collaboratively it's kind of like everyone's musical influences we've let all of that kind of seep in and mix into the uh stink funk pot if you will well, in your bio, it claims you guys broke through with a performance on December 21st, 2012 <laughs> at a legendary party known as the <laughs> Funk Apocalypse. Oh, my. For those not in attendance that fateful night, myself included, can you spin some oh, yarn on us. what all went down that night? Yeah, that date was the end of the Mayan calendar, right? People thought the world was going to end. Oh, so yeah. we uh, we leaned into that. <clears throat> so the show was at the Tavern, and I remember... We made more than we had ever made in this show. It was like a couple hundred bucks and we were fired up. We're like, yeah, this is the big one. And we we had some friends actually like picketing out on the square with like the end is nigh like <laughs> <laughs> posters and and garb. At one point, Greg, Greg Myers, who's was our percussion player for a long time and still sits in with us. At one point, I don't even think he had a vocal mic, but he just grabbed, I think, the percussion mic. And just basically started freestyling and came up with the I like to dance, I like to ski thing. Oh, he made that up. He made that up on stage. I didn't know that. So every show you guys do here in the Tetons, whether it be here in Jackson or over in Victor or Driggs, seems to sell out quickly and get the town in a frenzy. What do you think it is about you guys that resonates so much with the surrounding community? I mean, we feel really lucky that people keep coming back to shows and keep telling their friends that were fun i promise just just go to the show yeah. i mean some some of our friends must have they've been there is a lot 40, of 40 50 yeah. i don't even know how many shows a lot of shows just the the miracle that is the fact that we're still a band in yeah. such a transient place like the fact that we all still live here is mm-hmm. i mean we've just we've just been at it for a long time and like 
needed that support from people showing up to like kind of grow us. You know, yeah. we like cut our teeth doing those tavern shows. Mm-hmm. And does the does the skiing mania inform your music at all? Like, cool. how does that correlate? That fever to ski and the the fever to create music. Yeah, they're very much connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of our best shows have been when we skied that day and it was really good and then we get to play a show and it's the sort of like it's really yeah it's really like a similar it's like a celebration of that day's yeah epicness and some of our songs are even about skiing and kind of just about mountain life too so it's it's all kind of embedded but yeah that tapping into that like powder moment is it's kind of gaper day vibes for a lot of shows and those tend to be ridiculous shows but they're very fun and everyone's kind of in the same mindset. You can hear music from Sneaky Pete and the Secret Weapons right here on KHOL during our local music hour that airs weekdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Make sure to visit 891khol.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. You like to dance, you like to ski, you like to dance. I dance, you dance, we dance, we dance. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. Masks are now optional in the Teton County School District. The school board voted narrowly during a special meeting Saturday to mirror regulations at the county level, where the face covering requirement in most public spaces expired at the end of December. Trustee Janine Teske explained why she voted against continuing the mandate. I am not a healthcare professional. And I don't feel qualified to really make this decision that we should override what Dr. Rydell has suggested. Teske added that she believes masks are having a negative psychological impact on children and that hospitalizations and cases are happening rarely among local students. On the other side, yes, voters worried that surging case numbers due to the Omicron variant could lead to mass quarantines, staff strains, and eventual shifts to virtual schooling. That's why Teske also asked the district superintendent to send an email to all students and staff recommending face coverings, which follows current local Department of Health guidelines. I think our staff should be greatly encouraged to wear them, and I think our students should be encouraged to wear them. But I don't think we should be mandating to them that they do it. The number of new COVID-19 cases has jumped significantly in Jackson in recent weeks, with the Teton County Health Department recording its highest numbers of daily cases at any point in the pandemic at the end of last week. Hospitalizations and severe cases of the virus, however, have remained low thus far, according to local data. Superintendent Dr. Gillian Chapman did not voice her opinion on mass requirements during Saturday's meeting. Rural Western residents have been struggling over the past few years, according to a recent study. Nearly half the respondents in the over 1,200-person survey say they were at least experiencing mild mental health problems in the first year of the pandemic. Plus, almost 15% are exhibiting symptoms of serious psychological distress, like extreme restlessness, worry, and hopelessness. Tom Miller is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and a co-author of the paper. Basically, these results, I think, serve as kind of a cry for attention when it comes to 
what appears to be very serious issues of um, psychological distress across the rural West. The survey polled from non-metropolitan areas in 11 Western states and also looked at how COVID-19 affected respondents' economic and physical well-beings. Miller hopes policymakers look at this data as an argument for increasing resources for mental health in the region. The average rate of psychological distress nationwide before the pandemic was just 3 to 5 percent, 10 percent lower than what this survey found. And there's a lot of places in overall in the rural West that are really struggling and have been for a while. Even if this level of mental distress wasn't associated with COVID, it's still a huge problem. Over 13 percent of residents also said they were unemployed during the beginning of the pandemic. That's more than double the national average. But the authors say other sociological factors in the area, including social isolation and high cost of living, also could contribute to local mental health issues. Hiking, horseback riding, and boating were three of the most common activities that required assistance from Teton County Search and Rescue during the summer 2021 season. That's according to the team's year-end rescue report released in late December. The team also spent an unusually high amount of time working on three back-to-back missing person searches last fall, which required cooperation with federal agencies, including the U.S. Forest Service and the FBI. Matt Hansen is communications director for the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. When these outside agencies came into town and were looking for help to solve these problems in the backcountry, the search and rescue volunteers really stood up to that challenge and made it work. The report also addresses the mental toll that working on such difficult missions can have on team members. Hansen says the foundation prioritizes caring for the volunteers' mental health and that a new group of recruits is also helping boost morale. To have the 10 new class members on board, I think, provides some added confidence going into the winter that there are more people to call on um, in case we go into a situation where there are you know, multiple incidents happening day to day, sometimes multiple incidents happening at the same time. In total, Teton County SAR had 103 calls for service last year, just shy of the record of 105 set in 2017. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. And just in case your resolution this new year is to support more community radio, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a rating for Jackson Unpacked right now in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.